This world is plagued by chaos, harshness, and difficulty. Its unforgiving landscape hardened by sin like a barren rock lacks sympathy and love, leaving us feeling isolated, defeated, hopeless, and alone. Yet Christ has not called us out of the world, but sent us into it. Why is this? When we look closely, we can see his divine fingerprints, the very marks which allow us to look beyond the fleeting moments before us and through them to the vast expanse of eternity. It is here that we can joyfully acknowledge that every moment of our lives is significant and holds great purpose. A purpose to embody the life of Christ in every circumstance that a watching world may know Him. This is the life that shines like a light in the darkness. This is the book of Philippians. Good evening, everyone. Thank you. Right there is perfect. Awesome. Thanks, Connor. Uh, Y'all, we are back in Philippians, and it feels so good. If you're me, I love I love this book. Um, it was quickly becoming my favorite book in the Bible when we left last. We we're here a few months ago, so I'm super excited that we are back in um, into this letter tonight. Um, I was thinking though. Um, uh, do you ever watch a, uh, like go back and you watch, uh, maybe it was a movie that you watched when you were a kid, specifically like the kind of movie that is starring a kid and then adults kind of are like the worst in the movie. So let me give you an example. For me, uh, I loved watching the Disney Channel original movie, Halloween Town, every Halloween. Um, it was like my favorite, like me and my brother would watch it every year. If you've never seen, if you've never seen Halloween Town, this is all you need to know about it um, for this reference is uh, it's it's about this this girl named Marnie, and uh, her mom never lets her celebrate Halloween. You don't know why exactly. You find out it's actually because her mom was born in a place called Halloween Town, and she has these magical abilities as a witch. And Marnie also has these abilities, but her mom doesn't want her to live in those abilities or whatever. And so, as a kid, I was like the mom's the worst. Like she doesn't want their kid, her kid to have fun, do cool magic tricks. Like, like the mom is clearly the worst. Okay. But then now as I am older, I have continued to watch it every year or so. And what I have realized by watching this movie, except for the fact that the acting is not nearly as good as I thought when I was eight years old, uh, is that the mom kind of has a point to what she does along the way. Every, um, for example, I realized that the mom is handling the grief of the passing of her husband. That would be pretty significant and traumatizing. I mean, she is trying to raise three kids while working a full-time job. That's a pretty difficult task. Not exactly the worst mom of the year, right? Mom's a hero. And then grandma comes in every year and she oversteps every conceivable boundary in the world that the mom has placed for the raising of her kids. And then Marnie is super unreasonable, very unkind to her mom. Now you can probably tell as I'm talking about this, that I, of where I currently sit at this point in my life, right? Like now as an adult and specifically now journey into parenthood, I all of a sudden watch movies like this with a different set of eyes where I'm like, 
I'm like, kids are kind of being ridiculous here, you know? Now, I bring this up because of, because, um, because there's a principle that I was thinking about. Um, it's a f- the filter that we look at and we watch everything through. Now, the filter that we have, it allows us to see with greater degrees of clarity what is, um, what, what is like me in a story. Um, now, for example, here's what I mean by that. It's a principle that we could probably define down to, I don't know if any of you ever had this said to you when you were younger. Um, this was said to me when I was 16. It's not me, it's you. Like that idea where um, the, the problem is the other person. Now, here's why that matters. Because in the same way, when it comes to like the way that I watch kids' movies now as an adult, is that phrase can be slightly altered to be, it's it's not people like me, it's people like you. In other words, who I identify with becomes the hero of the story and who I don't identify with becomes the villain of the story, becomes the worst. And this is the kind of filter that we use to interpret the events of our lives and the world around us. This filter mentality, now it can either be helpful or unhelpful depending on if it, if it blinds us from reality or brings us greater clarity of reality. Our mentality can most importantly shelter us from genuine self-awareness when we consider introspectively, where am I flawed in my thinking? You know, think about the last argument you had with a friend or a roommate, coworker, the last problem you had with your boss at work, the last time you turned on any social media or any regular media outlet. And you're like, you're like, they're the worst. And it's just like, whoever they is, there's always a they, right? But see, we so easily go, they're the worst, but we don't bother to ask, where, where's my thinking possibly flawed? Where am, where am I desiring something that's ultimately unhelpful? Where am I not getting the full picture? So we don't typically ask questions like that, right? Because it does a lot to damage the way that we are actually perceiving the entirety of the story. And instead it deflects all the problem, all the blame over to the other person. Now, tonight's passage has the potential to challenge each of our mentalities, drawing us to what is true and the one that our hearts long for. The question, though, is will we allow the Word of God to do that work? Will we allow the Scriptures to challenge our hearts? Or will we go, I know somebody who needs to hear about this. So, it's been a minute since we've been in the book of Philippians. Um, so I want to give you a quick recap before we get into the book itself. It is written by a guy. His name is Paul. He is currently sitting imprisoned in the middle of Rome. He is imprisoned because of his allegiance to Jesus. And he is unsure of if he will achieve freedom in his life or if he will ever get out of this prison cell or if he's going to be executed like next week. He had no idea how this was going to play out. And now he is writing this letter to this church that he loves so deeply because just a decade before this, he, he actually helped start this church. He planted this church. So his love and care for this church runs super deep and he wants to encourage and challenge them towards greater faithfulness. 
Now, where we last left off over a month ago is when we were in this series is with Paul's encouragement to the church to stand strong against opposing forces outside of their biblical community. So we're in first, uh, we're in Philippians chapter two, but I'm gonna go a little above that first um, while you're flipping there uh, and read you just a little bit about where we just were at. Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. That's a pretty epic saying, right? Like Paul is, is speaking a lot of really good stuff right there. Live a life um, with a manner worthy of the gospel. Stand side by side. This is the idea of us as soldiers marching in sync and in step with one another. Don't allow the opponents, the world around you to define what's going to happen here. You guys march in step and march in unity with one another. So last time we were in this, he was talking about the opponents without, like the opponents outside of the biblical community. But now what he's going to do is begin to focus on the opposing forces that exist within our own souls, within our own hearts. See, it's much more convenient to believe that the issue is always with someone else. If they just were blank, then blank. If everything, everything would be perfect if they would just get their act together. If they would stop causing that drama in the workplace. If they, if that roommate would just clean up their dishes for once. So I didn't have to do like all of those things that are natural. But if we're honest with ourselves, we realize that life's not really ever that simple. So let me go ahead and I'm going to read you the entire passage that we're going to be in tonight and then we'll break it down piece by piece. But there are two words that I want you to focus in on as we are reading this. And um, those words are, I'm sorry, and that the words are humility and mind, okay? So chapter two, verse one. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So if you, um, assuming you didn't just tune out when I was reading that entire thing and you're, and you're like, whoa, that perfectly describes me then maybe you should be up here teaching or something because for us mere mortals, we read something like that and we're like, yeah, that sounds ideal, but that's not me. That's not the natural posture of my heart. But you see what Paul's getting at is these are true signs of victory within our souls. So let's break it down verse by verse, going back to verse one. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, so there's a key word that's used at the beginning. He uses the word if. So if. Now, 
Typically, when you think of the word if, there are two ways that if can be taken. One, the most common way to take the word if, is that whenever it is said, it means that it is something that is questionable. Like if I said, man, um, if it snows in Orlando tonight. Now, could it theoretically snow in Orlando tonight? I mean, it feels, it feels that cold for my Floridian blood at this point, right? But no, it is very unlikely to snow. But theoretically speaking, yes, it can always snow here in Orlando. Now, it's not that kind of if that he's using here, especially if you look in, at the Greek. What he's actually getting at is an assumed statement, okay? So do you remember back in school, maybe you remember this? Um, I think I got this in like, was it geometry or algebra two, some, some math class in high school, but where they're like, where they talk about if-then statements. Do you remember those if-then statements also normal in science classes and stuff? Okay, so an if-then statement is, is the idea that the if is attached to an assumed fact or a hypothesis. And then the then presupposes what is a logical conclusion based on that assumed fact. Okay, so like, um, this might be a bad example, I don't know. But like, if, if pizza is delicious. Now, like we all know, right, in this room that pizza is delicious. Like that is an assumed fact for all of existence. Pizza is delicious. Not all pizza is delicious, granted. But in general, the concept of pizza is a delicious concept. Then you should go get pizza tonight. Does that make sense? Like a logical conclusion to the fact that pizza is delicious is that you should go get some tonight, okay? So again, probably not the best example. That's what I have right now. But that's the kind of logic that Paul is using. He is saying a bunch of things connected to an if that are assumptions, facts that he genuinely believes to be true. And then he is going to then connect it to the logical outflow of those assumed facts. So he says four different things and all of them if you'll notice, are facts, but they're facts that are married to emotional reactions to these things being true. He says, encouragement in Christ. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, participation in the spirit, sympathy and affection. So he's using a lot of emotional energy in these statements. So let's go about it one by one. Encouragement in Christ. See, for those of us who follow after Jesus, who've surrendered our lives to him, there is genuine encouragement in him. In Jesus, we find encouragement, just as we were singing before about our, our true foundation. In our world, there is a, there's a myriad of shaky foundations in the world. You put your hope in whatever, in a company, in a government, in a bank account, in a job, in a relationship, those are all shaky foundations, right? Those things might look pretty firm right now, but we just, we have seen through the pandemic how so many things can shake so fast. We would have never anticipated that, right? But we have a firm foundation in Jesus. And so there is encouragement in that, that we are known by him, that we are found in him and that nothing that happens in this world can remove that from us. So there's genuine encouragement in him. The second though, is there is comfort from love. See, because of Jesus, we have been loved on display to us and for us. And it's not hypothetical and it's not insufficient. It is true love that can produce genuine comfort. Did you get that? It is true love that can produce genuine comfort. 
See, this is the type of love that we have in Jesus, comfort from love. And then he says participation in the spirit. Now the word participation in Greek is the word koinonia. And this means fellowship or community. Now here's why that matters. Because you see, when we are following after Jesus, it can feel pretty lonely at times. But you see, we are not alone in this journey. We have one another in the family of God. We might get tired walking this path. You might get exhausted. You might feel at times hopeless, filled with doubt. But then we look to our left and our right and we realize we do not walk this path alone. We might be weary travelers, but there are other weary travelers who are chugging along with us. And that, I don't know about for you, but that's really good news for my heart. See, our partnership though, it's not one that is naturally formed with one another. It's not rooted in agreeing on politics or cultural movements or whether you prefer Disney or Universal, right? Like it's, it's one formed, as he says, a sim, um, participation in the spirit. It's because of the spirit of God doing a mighty work in us that we can be a part of the same family, even though we come from such varying backgrounds. We see things so vastly different, but we can have participation in the spirit. And this participation fills us with sympathy and affection for one another. So now Paul is going to move on from those assumed facts. So all those things he is saying are things that they already know and believe. Those are things I already know and believe. I hope for you that those are all things that you, that we all together hope for and know and believe to be true. So now he's going to move on to what is the logical conclusion of those believed true facts. Well, verse two, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So if these things are true, then what? Then Paul says, then my joy should be overflowing. Why? Because his truest desire is, should be being realized. That they are demonstrating radical love and unity with one another. That they are now of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Now the word mind that's used here uh, in Greek can be uh, translated in a number of different ways. Typically around the idea of to create judgment or I like the word mentality. Have the same mentality. Just like as I talked about before, when I watch a movie and when I'm a kid, I have the same mentality as the kid character, right? But now as a parent, I'm starting to see things a little different where all of a sudden I'm like, yeah, you should be pretty intentional with how you're raising your kids or whatever, right? Like those things start to make more sense because my mentality has shifted. And Paul is saying, have the same mentality together. Now, when we go to Walt Disney World, there are a ton of people from all across the globe, right? From every different walk of life, um, different political affiliations, belief systems, hobbies, and so much more, right? 
Now, there, if like, let's say you're in line to ride Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway, right? Like, wonderful attraction. Line can be pretty long sometimes. And you're standing in line. You can rest assured that as you are standing in line, that there is a myriad of views of God in that line with you, right? Like there is probably somebody in line that believes that God is a tree, somebody else that believes they themselves is God, somebody believes that Jesus is the Lord himself, right? Like there is a myriad of beliefs because there's not a theology test to enter into Walt Disney World, right? Now, now then what brings us to Walt Disney World besides typically money or working for Disney, right? But this idea that Disney is fun, it's enjoyable. Now, uh, granted, there is typically at least one member of the family that has no desire to be at Disney World. They lost the vacation draw for this year, right? Like, but for most of us at Walt Disney World, we go because it's fun. There's good service, good storytelling, that kind of stuff. See, what I'm getting at is that you don't have to have the same mindset of almost anything except for liking Mickey Mouse to go to Walt Disney World, right? Now, here's why that matters. Because unfortunately, for the church we can oftentimes sink across the same lines. We, we don't, we can, we, can lit, we can worship together and we come together on a regular basis and we don't allow our mentality to be shaped into the mentality of Jesus. We can come for years coming just because you are lonely and want friends, which again, that's not a bad thing to create friendships here. It's not, but it's not the main point. You can say, I come to church because I want to meet my future spouse. Um, I come to church because I want to feel better about myself or because I want God to reward me by getting like Christian check marks off or whatever. Now, the reality is that those are varying degrees of helpful or unhelpful. But at the end of the day, if we are spending time in biblical community authentically and we are spending time with Jesus authentically, those shouldn't be the defining markers of our mentality in coming together. What Paul is getting at is that true followers of Jesus are called to have the same mentality with one another. This means sharing the same core beliefs, the truth and the beauty of the gospel, the sufficiency of the scriptures, sharing the same love and affection for God and for the world around us, sharing the same core identity that we've been adopted into the forever families of God as sons and daughters sharing the same core mission, to go and to make disciples. See, this type of mentality, it doesn't come naturally, but it comes in the spirit as we are abiding with Jesus. Now, Paul is gonna move into verse three where he's gonna begin to talk about what it looks like when we are living out of the same mind, when we have this one mind, the same love, living in one accord it says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. I don't know about you guys, but that is probably the hardest verse in this entire passage, right? Like, because there's like feet on this one. The other ones you are like, yeah, like mentality and stuff like that. Like, I, I, I agree with that concept. But like here, like this affects the way I wake up in the morning and what I do at three o'clock and what we do in the break rooms or whatever, right? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. This 
cue like the joke, what do you think the word nothing means in Greek? Nothing, like do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. You see, when we are living in that same mentality, the result is a way of life that is cosmically different from the world around us and from what comes naturally to ourselves even. What results is Christ-like humility. Now that word humility that's used here, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Now that word humility, um, in the Roman world, that was a dirty word. And not like it's, it was a, a cuss word, but like literally it was a dirty word. It literally means to be of the dirt. In their world, this was a, this humility was not considered in any way she performed to be a virtue. In fact, it was considered something that was left for slaves and bond servants who would come after others and lowly serve them. So the idea of humility, like in our world, I'd say there's like, there's like a 40% appreciation of humility, right? Like, like we kind of appreciate humility in our culture. Not like, it's not like the top thing that everyone does cue social media, right? But like we, but we don't also don't hate humility. Like when an athlete wins a game and they're like, man, it's all about the team. They're awesome. Like we, we respect that, right? Instead of going, yeah, I went out there, owned it. You know, like we don't love that guy necessarily, right? But in the Roman world, the concept of humility was worse than just something that was like a secondary virtue. It wasn't considered a virtue at all. In fact, you could even say this was a really bad um, PR stunt by the early church. Like to be known for humility, which they were, the early church spread and thrived because they were known for their Christ-like humility towards one another and towards the world around them. Isn't that crazy? Is that what the church is known for today? Is that what you're known for? It's not usually what I'm known for. But this is what we're called to, to live in humility. See, in our world, in our day, there are different phrases that can be thrown around, like stand up for yourself, get get what's yours, live your truth, like those kind of mentalities. Focus on me. And they draw us to a self-focused life, a life that we couldn't even imagine pressing into. And hence why a passage like this sounds so contrary to our souls and to the world around us. See, he talks about selfish ambition. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Now here's what selfish, selfish ambition means. Selfish ambition is the ruthless pursuit of your own way. Do whatever you have to do to get whatever you're trying to get to. Um, think about middle school and high school. Selfish, um, this idea of selfish ambition, this ruthless pursuit of our own way is, uh, is not very subtle, right? Um, I don't know if any of you were as terrible of a friend as I was sometimes in high school, but like where you would leave one friend group to go over to another friend group because there was a cooler friend group. So you're like ditching the other friend group, right? Or you uh, begin to pick on others because it could be viewed as impressive by others. See, in middle school and high school, like that's normal, fairly normal, at least in where I grew up. But as adults, do we still do this? Yeah. We just get, we got better at it, right? We got more subtle. Like things like gossiping about coworkers, talking, taking full credit of work that we only partially completed, putting our wants against the needs of others. All of it 
empty. And speaking of emptiness, he talks about the next thing, selfish ambition or conceit. See, we, conceit is simply defined as empty glory. It is glory that is ultimately has nothing inside of it. And see, we compete for empty glory in our world. And there are some questions that I discovered that help us def- kind of re- realize how conceit can pop up in our lives. So I'll just read them out loud and you can be convicted like I was convicted by reading this list. Am I competing for people's attention and approval? Do I find it difficult or easy to rejoice in the success of others? Am I conceited? Do I think I'm superior to others? Am I truly concerned about the needs of others? Sit in that. Sit in that. But don't sit in that just so that we can go, man, we're the worst. Like, like that's not the point. But what Paul is saying is that the logical conclusion to the truths that we believe in the gospel should not lead us to that place. The logical conclusion is this, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. See, this doesn't feel natural to us, but Jesus, the only one who has a legit right to glory, stepped into the role of a servant, counting others as more significant than himself to the point of death on a cross. And for those of us who follow after Jesus, we don't follow the path of one who always got his way, of one who puffed out his chest and said, yeah, that that miracle, this guy. Like that wasn't Jesus, right? The path of the one who didn't assert his own rights, the path of the one who didn't put himself first. This is Jesus. And it's not comfortable, but he is good. Verses four and five. Let each of you look not to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. See, this is the mindset that Jesus played out. And next week, we're actually going to talk more about the mindset of Jesus on display in the example of Jesus. But here's what I do know to be true. We will never have genuine unity within any biblical community apart from each of us walking in genuine humility toward one another. Can't do it. Can't fake it. See, everything that has happened over the last three to five years in our world and in our country and in the church locally and abroad has proven the level of disunity that exists. And unfortunately, the church is not immune. And honestly, this might sound simplistic and you might be writing this off already, but I think I'm walking on pretty solid ground here with Paul because it's rooted in Jesus. But you see, our disunity reveals our arrogance in our own way. And our unity reveals our humility in following the way of Jesus. I like the way that John Stott once wrote it. He said, at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. Now, just to make sure we are clear about what we were talking about when we were talking about humility, I love, I've said this before, but the way C.S. Lewis talks about humility is he says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. 
And he goes on to say in that quote, a lot of really brilliant C.S. Lewis kind of things. But he talks about the fact that if you actually met somebody who is truly humble, you wouldn't go, man, they're just like in the mud, just like, like thinking they're, they're the worst person ever at all. You would actually go, wow, they just seem totally interested in everyone else. They just seem truly loving towards everyone else. You might still think that there needs to be greater nuance on the subject, and there's a lot of good books out there if you really want that, but the scripture doesn't give us a ton of nuance on the subject of humility. Instead, it gives us the example of the humble servant, Jesus, and it says, follow, follow. So then the question comes up, how do we grow in humility? Do we work harder? Do we do more? Do we earn it? The answer is no but we do draw near to the one who gives us the power. Abide with Jesus. We draw near to him and we do that as we engage in rhythms of intimacy, spiritual rhythms, spiritual disciplines, whatever you wanna call them, that we would draw near to him. So if you're a note-taking type of person, I'm just gonna lay out a, um, a few spiritual disciplines that I would invite you to engage in that I believe would be pretty helpful. Um, And these were actually written by a pastor named Tony Morita. So I'm just stealing these from him. Um, But the first is to preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. You don't have to just listen to podcasts or come to church. You can preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself of what is true about Jesus at the gospel. That when he went to the cross, what that meant. I love the way that the hymn, How Deep the Father Love says it. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. You see, at the cross, there's no room for arrogance or pride, right? Like we don't look at Jesus hanging on a cross and go, I'm looking pretty good right about now, right? Like, no, not at all. We go, oh my goodness, the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man and the grace of Jesus on display. Praise God and amen. So preach the gospel to yourself. Reflect on the glory of Jesus. We'll talk about this in a few weeks. But reflect on the one that while we go after conceit, that empty glory, in Jesus, he deserves all the glory. Third is by engaging in the scriptures. Bible intake, it matters. Study the scriptures and discover the character and personality of God because he is the most captivating character in all of creation because he's the creator of creation. So it works out pretty easily. But we get to hear his voice in the scriptures and that can bring us to humility through prayer. Our one reason for our prayerlessness is our lack of humility. Prayer is very hard to do because it often seems like we're not actually doing anything. But what's sometimes worse than that is that it's hard because it's also a humbling act because we have to humble ourselves before God and say, you are good and you are great and I don't have control to enter into that space. And then finally, serve others. Serve others. That's what this verse is about, right? Humble yourselves and serve others. But don't do it to get noticed. Do it to draw near to Jesus. Do it to demonstrate love for others. And as you do this, pray that God would generate in you a genuine spirit of humility that would so gloriously be on display that would bring the focus onto Jesus. 
don't know about you, but I volunteered before and I'll confess, I did it with a terrible heart and I got nothing out of it. I, I it was um, serving at a wonderful um, ministry partner and I was just, I didn't want to be there that day. All my friends were seeing a movie that night and I was like, what am I doing? And I served for three hours with a fake smile on my face. And, but I didn't have a heart of humility or service. So pray that the spirit of God would do work in us. At the end of the day, how did the early church turn the world upside down? They obeyed a different king. They lived lives that reflected the values of a different kingdom. They lived lives that were worthy of the gospel and that involved standing together against external opposition with courage and serving one another with humble compassion. And this is our invitation, church, that we get to do this together. I'm gonna invite the band to come on up. See, the beauty of the gospel is that we, we get to look at Jesus. That it's not about what we do. It's not about us figuring it all out. It's about what he has done and who he is. And see, for us, that's not an alone journey. It's not a solo venture. It's not us going by ourselves. But instead, it is us as a community going to Jesus, going to the foot of the cross, engaging in life together. I don't know about you guys, but I have seen and been a part of such disunity in my soul and in the world. And guys, I think there are enough individuals who are angling for disunity in our world. What if the church around the globe humbled ourselves? What if the church went to Jesus and said, Lord, I don't have it, but you do. What if the church came together and genuinely said, man, I'm so sorry to one another. See, this is the kind of thing that doesn't happen naturally, but as it says, participation in the spirit. It's participation together, but not because we're so awesome, but because Jesus is. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the beauty of the gospel. Father, passages like this can land really tough and difficult. I know for me, and I would imagine I'm not the only person here, that can feel just like a stinging accusation against us. But the reality is, that's not why you allowed this particular letter and this part of this letter to be in your Bible. But that instead it is supposed to remind us of the one that we're being drawn to that we would have the mindset of Jesus, the mentality of Jesus, the mind of Christ. So Lord, I, I come to you right now with, with my brothers and sisters asking, Lord, that you would do a work in us that we are incapable on our own. 
I pray, Lord, against any spirit of disunity or any type of frustration that might exist amongst one another, any type of um, any type of guilt and shame that we might be feeling even in this moment. But instead, we are reminded of the good news of the gospel, that through the gospel, it's not about how good or bad we are. It's just about how great Jesus is and how good he was to save us. So Lord, we come to you tonight and I am asking that you would do your work in our hearts and in our minds. Yes, Lord. You are good and you are kind and you are faithful. It's in Jesus' name we pray.